Welcome to Disability and the Canadian Church, a podcast where we talk about the intersections of disability and the Christian faith in Canada and beyond. I'm Keith Dow. And I'm Jasmine Duckworth. We'll be your hosts, and we're so glad you're joining us today. We're excited to learn from diverse voices as we welcome a couple of guests each week to share their insights and expertise on aspects of disability and faith. Our guests today are Bethany McKinney-Fox and Matthew Arguin. So Reverend Dr. Bethany McKinney-Fox is a writer, teacher, and speaker living in Los Angeles. She coaches clergy and church starters with the Presbyterian Church of the USA, um, their network, 1,001 New Worshiping Communities and other organizations. She's also Director of Formation for Cyclical LA, a local church starting network. She founded Beloved Everybody, an ability-inclusive church where people with and without disabilities lead and participate all together, which she led for several years. Her book, uh, Disability and the Way of Jesus, Holistic Healing in the Gospels and the Church, which we'll talk a lot about today, examines how Jesus' healing in the Gospels, too often used in ways that wound people with disabilities, might point a way towards real healing and mutual thriving. Matt Arguin has served as an Anglican priest for the last 10 years. In addition to regular parish duties, the bulk of his ministry has focused on forming relationships with those in vulnerable populations. First at Bishop Cronin Memorial Church, then at St. June's and St. Alban the Martyr in London, Ontario. From December 2020 until April 2022, Matt worked for WISH, which stands for Winter Interim Solution to Homelessness which provided emergency housing and basic needs for 30 to 60 residents at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Most recently, Reverend Arguin has been providing interim Sunday coverage for clergy in the Diocese of Huron, while continuing to work on articles surrounding theology and disability. Published contributions include an anecdote in Bethany McKinney-Fox's book and A Prayer in Time of Pandemic, featured in the Canadian Journal of Mental Health, Disability, and Theology. So before we dive into the interview that we had uh, with Matt and Bethany, Jasmine, what are some of the things that that really stood out to you from our conversation with them? I love the honesty and the realness of the conversation. Um, Both guests brought some humor and some vulnerability, uh, and they really shared what was on their hearts. And I really appreciated that they were so open with us. And I hope that listeners appreciate that as well. Yeah, and you you took the words right from my mouth. I think that that vulnerability is powerful, and it's also such a challenge too, right? Because it's easy to to talk a good game, um, but when it gets down to actually working in our churches and community for accessibility, for belonging, for following Jesus, like those aren't easy things, and mm-hmm. um, being challenged on that can be so so difficult, but lead to such transformation um, throughout throughout our work too. So I appreciated the, the, those challenging moments as well as those moments that were uh, joy filled and hope filled. All 
right. Well, welcome, Bethany and Matt. Uh, thanks for joining us today on the Disability and the Canadian Church podcast. We're so happy to, to have you with us, and uh, thanks for making the time. Today, we're going to explore the topic of when healing hurts, uh, resisting normalcy. And uh, so I'm sure there's all sorts of different avenues we can take to talk about that topic. And I know, um, Bethany, you have a, a book out as well. So we, we have lots to talk about today, and we'll jump right into it. Um, what we wanted to start with, though, was could you talk to us a bit, uh, and either one of you can go first, about your connection with disability and faith. How did you become involved in this work? Um, and what kind of drew you to it or, or threw you into it, as is sometimes the case? I guess I'll start. Um, in terms of being connected with disability, I myself am a disabled person. I'm a full-time wheelchair user. I have cerebral palsy, so you can say that I'm connected in a very intimate way in that sense. And then also, in terms of being uh, aware of disability and theology, it actually came out of a conference in Toronto that I met Keith and Bethany at, um, the Institute for Theology, what is it, Keith? I can't remember the actual uh, acronym. Yeah, the Institute on Theology and Disability. Yes, it's the Summer Institute on Theology and Disability, and that was back in... 2014, I want to say. Yeah, 13 or 14. Yeah, it's a while ago now. It's amazing how time passes. Yeah, and so I had, went to that conference. It was like three or four days and uh, made some connections, made some friends, and uh, realized that theology and disability was a thing that you could actually discuss and talk about, and read about, and write about. So that was exciting for me. Well, and the bizarre thing about that uh, that time too, and I think every year at the Institute, uh, just discovering that there are so many other people that, that care about this intersection too and are willing to talk about it and um, be a little geeky about it as well and kind of know the different works and dive into some of those questions. Um, so thanks for thanks for sharing that. And what about yourself, Bethany? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think anybody who's alive and has connections with other people has disability in their realm, even if you're not born with a disability. Um, but I think it didn't become really obvious to me or something I kind of thought about directly until I was in high school and had a friend uh, with some developmental and intellectual disabilities. Um, and I think, yeah, it was it was a friendship that, you know, I think was really just enjoyable and healing for me in a number of ways. Uh, and so then as I got older and was in church spaces and did teach special education, which is what we call it here in the U.S. for a while. Um, I think I wondered why our faith communities didn't seem to be places uh, of hospitality or welcome, particularly for folks with intellectual disabilities. And so that was something I began thinking about, doing a little reading about, and then, uh, like Matt, eventually stumbled on the Institute on Theology and Disability and uh, became part of a whole cadre of folks like you all. It's been lovely to get to know you over time. So the two of you know each other already. I understand you met at the Institute. Can you tell us, do you have any other overlap? I'm not sure other than the book. I mean, we, we've chatted okay. back and forth. Tell us about the book. Um, so Bethany sent me an email. I, gosh, I guess it would have been 2017, 2018, because the book was published in 2019, right? That's right. Yeah, so it, obviously whenever you're writing something, it takes a while to develop. And uh, Bethany put out an email to a bunch of us basically asking for any firsthand experiences that we've had 
in terms of healing and disability and sort of just put out an open call. And uh, so I submitted one and it ended up in the first chapter, which was kind of cool, along with a bunch of other great stories who I've um, consequently met some of those folks and uh, had conversations with them too. Thanks. Do you want to drop the name of the book here in case readers, uh, sorry, listeners are wondering where they can read it? I'll let Bethany take care of that because she's the author. (laughs) Okay, sure. Uh, The title is Disability and the Way of Jesus, Holistic Healing in the Gospels and the Church. Long and descriptive. Good book, though. I've read it. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, so I felt like um, as someone who, you know, I think I have various areas of body stigma attached to me, but disability, I feel like it's a real fuzzy word, so I'm not sure that it applies to me directly, though, depending on context, it does apply to me. And so, um, but I did feel like it was important if you're writing a book on disability to make sure that people who kind of identify as disabled most of the time also have stories and voices uh, in the mix, even though the book was kind of theological and academic. It obviously is entirely incomplete without real experiences from real people, real people like Matt. (laughs) Thank you, Bethany. (laughs) Well, and I think that's one of the things that I love about Matt's story. And I was going back through the book today and yeah, that struck me as well, Matt, just how early on your story is. I got a few pages in reviewing my notes and like, Oh, there's Matt. Um, But that's one thing that strikes me about your story and just getting to know you over the years as well is how real you are. And uh, I mean, most people are real in like a physical sense, but but just uh, like your willingness to engage with humor and uh, candor is the word that comes to mind, but just like honesty, right? Um, just being direct and to the point and not not beating around the bush. And, and so I really appreciate that uh, in your story too, just sharing how you've encountered people who have interpreted healing in different ways and how that's uh, sometimes can be quite uh, destructive. Um, and, and as I was looking back over your story here, you, you talk about stifling a laugh when you're wearing your clergy shirt and your clergy collar and the, um, the person with a big cross on them comes up to you and asks if you know Jesus, right? And right. Uh, <laughs> some of the, the stigma issues around that and the interpretation that's happening in the person's mind. And uh, the two beautiful things about that are A, laughing, which I think is a perfectly appropriate uh, response and actually um, I may want to hear from you a bit on, on how humor relates to, to healing as well. Um, but laughing and also stifling the laugh because a, that's really hard to do. And I think it shows your heart too. that you, you weren't wanting to laugh in the person's face, even if they might've deserved it. So, um, do you want to maybe walk us through just briefly that, that story again? And, um, and yeah, how did, how did that transpire in your mind? And as you, as you talk. Yeah, so I live in a downtown part of London, Ontario. And as with any sort of downtown core, you'll meet a whole bunch of interesting folks. Um, and some of them will have, you know, the very best of evangelical intentions. You know, they want to come and make sure that you know Jesus real good. Um, and so um, that happened to me a couple of years ago now, almost a decade. <laughs> um, and um, again, it's one of those conversations where, you know, I tell the story in the book, but it's not the first time that it's happened to me either. I think if you talk to anybody who is a wheelchair user or is disabled, they've had some 
sort of uh, iteration of the, of the conversation of somebody asking you, you know, do you want to be healed? And you're kind of stuck with this question of, well, I've been living like this ever since I was a little kid. Uh, I don't really know any different. And, uh, you know, approaching it in a way that doesn't insult the question, but addresses the question. I think that has always been my approach. Um, cause sometimes if you don't, uh, if you don't use that approach, then people won't take you seriously or they, they'll try and rationalize what they've heard. Um, and it was really interesting that the dude in the story, uh, and in other situations as well, the dude just walked away. Um, he didn't know what, how to respond. And I find that part of the story interesting, too, because what does that say about the wider attitude around disability? Right? If it's just something to be healed and that's it, um, you know, that's not necessarily a healthy way to be looking at things. So I, I want to try and find healthy, good, theologically grounded ways to look at disability. You've mentioned healing a few times, um, and that's in the title of this episode. Would each of you please like define for us, how do you think of healing? What's the definition of healing that you're working from? Um, maybe we'll ask Bethany to go first, because Matt, you were just talking, and we want to make sure we keep it fair. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I kind of wanted Matt to go first, but... Well, um, you can you can <laughs> defer. <laughs> no, it's, I don't mind. Um, yeah, I think healing, the thing that is important to me in, in talking about healing is that it is the, the word holistic, which is in like kind of my book's subtitle is super important when it comes to healing, because I think we tend to, especially in cultures that are kind of biomedically focused or where bodies and things get reduced to kind of how your biomedical provider describes your body is who you are in a way. Um, and so if you're sick, your identity is kind of wrapped up in your diagnosis or whatever your doctor tells you. And so I think that we tend to then think that healing means changing that aspect of your identity, right? Which means having a cure, getting some kind of bodily cure from whatever your doctor has told you has is awry in your body or brain or both. So um, I think that it's important for me when I think about healing, and I think if this is true in scripture, is to think about healing and cure as distinct uh, categories, that cure is kind of a biomedical category, maybe, and that you maybe your cancer gets cured, or maybe you're, you know, you get a cure for a different kind of thing. But healing is a, a bigger category that involves kind of shalom or a sense of wellness uh, that may or may not include a physical cure. Um, certainly God is wildly free and can do whatever God wants to do. But, um, I feel like, uh, you know, I was, I was talking about this with somebody recently. We were talking about how someone can be healed without being cured. Meaning let's say your sense of self, your connection to God, your, uh, just overall wholeness, which is kind of connected to a whole lot of things. Your relationships, your socioeconomic stuff. There's like your vocation, your sense of meaningfulness in life. I mean, it's a huge, you know, to, to say I feel whole 
and I, I don't think any of us are completely whole once we start naming all those categories, but in general, having a sense of flourishing or however we want to think about that, um, that you can be healed without necessarily being cured. Lots of us, lots of people have health conditions or disabilities or any number of things that are not cured, but yet we experience a sense of healing or grow in our social connections or our sense of our own connection to God or our bodies, um, those kinds of things. So that can be an experience of healing even without a cure taking place. And at the same time, someone might be cured and actually not be healed in the sense that maybe they have overcome a disease or you know, their body has conformed to the biomedical category of normal, and yet they still are disconnected from other people or they have a deep sense of unwellness in a different way. And so just recognizing that healing is like a multifaceted, multi-layered, on lots of different levels sort of thing um, is is how I think about it. So yeah, all of that. <laughs> um, for me, uh, healing similar to what Bethany just said, um, making that distinction between cure and healing or wholeness, and also uh, the fact that healing entails being integrated into the community or welcomed back into the community, whatever the case may be. Uh, usually that if you look at the stories in the Gospels, for instance, right, when the paralytic is healed, He's not only healed of his uh, ability to walk, but he's also restored the community. If you think about the the story about the demoniac that's living out in the graveyard, same type of thing, right? It's not just that he's liberated from demons, it's that he's able to return to the community. Um, so that idea of being surrounded by a bigger uh, group, a bigger uh, community is really key for me, I think. No, that's really helpful. Uh, thank you, Bethany and Matt. And one of the things that strikes me, so both in the story that you shared, Matt, from a, a decade ago, um, and uh, on social media, sometimes you'll share about how you're going to work with uh, the WISH, right? Winter Interim Solution to Homelessness. And uh, mm -hmm. you're, you're work, being involved there in the city, um, in, in London, and trying to get uh, you know, help help people uh, and bring healing to that community, and yet you're often running into uh, barriers, right? Whether it's snow left on the sidewalk in inconvenient ways or what have you. So, um, can you talk to us a bit about what does what does healing look like in that kind of a context as you're uh, working in community settings to bring a kind of social healing there? Oh man, that's a that's a big question. I think that, um, for starters, uh, recognizing that the communities are there. I think London is slightly infamous, as many cities are, of not recognizing that those who are struggling with homelessness do have their own community. Um, they do have their own connections. They do have their own relationships. And all of that is really important to hold on to. So when I, when I was working at WISH, um, one of the main emphases was to make sure that those community connections were being held on to. Um, obviously, uh, in my context, being at WISH, it was in the context of sort of providing housing in the middle of the pandemic. And just to pick up on a, on a point that uh, Bethany already mentioned, 
was, depending on how you define disability and lack of access to resources, lack of mobility, lack of whatever, at what point does being homeless have the connotation of being disabled, of not being able to be able to access certain goods and services? Uh, what are some of the ways in which they're not able to interact with, you know, everyday communities that they need to be a part of? Um, so being aware that A, those communities exist, and B, that they need access uh, was two really important things. Um, and also making sure that as we worked with these folks, um, you were able to develop relationships with them as opposed to just working on their behalf, if that makes any sense. Um, so we were really encouraged to, you know, uh, when we were preparing meals and stuff to make sure we sat down with them, make sure that it was part of not just our job, but our lives, um, which is a really difficult distinction to make, especially in a culture where we're taught about professional and medical distance. Um, both of those things come into play. Um, but I think being able to have that vulnerability and that ability and willingness to be in community uh, is really a central thing. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I liked um, what you said about, I won't get the words as eloquent as you did about um, working with them and not just working on their behalf. I, that's a beautiful way to talk, mm -hmm. show that healing in community, in relationship, in that integrated community. Um, which you talked about earlier in your definition of healing, that it's being integrated into the community again. Um, thank you. That was lovely. I think, can I, can I, I think that's a really good point, Matt. And there's a part of it. Can I pick up on a piece of it? I feel like something that it makes me think about is how, I mean, I think about healing when people do it, it's really complicated or when people think they're doing it or want to do it when people are the ones doing it to other people think that they're participating in healing or something, it is a really like hierarchical exchange in a way. Um, and it makes me think about all these questions. Like there are, there's a book I think called like when helping hurts or when healing hurts or something there. And those are a lot of times tend to be about like missions work and things like that. But I feel like there's like an overlap when we're thinking about healing and when we're thinking about anytime we're thinking about something we're going to do to like improve someone else's, life there is a way that it sets up this dichotomy of like i'm the well one and you're the like messed up one and i'm here to like make you well and i think what matt you're talking about with the um folks that you were in community with um in your work it's complicated because we all want to think that it's like oh we're helping because we recognize on some deep level that our like the wholeness of you and the wholeness of me are like connected somehow that it isn't like I'm doing this for you, but it is like your wholeness leads to my wholeness and that somehow those things are wrapped up in each other. And that's the thing I'm trying to figure out. Cause I just don't know that there's a way that we can think about part being he like, 
I guess I'm thinking about the God healing people versus people thinking they're doing healing and this, and just if there's any way to actually do that or think about participating in healing or being healers in a way that isn't, doesn't have that gross feeling of like, I'm above you and like, how sad for you that you're so unhealed and let me help you. I don't know. It feels complicated. Yeah. And one, one thing that bubbled up for me as you were talking about that, one thing that I remembered, and it's still a really big problem, um, is that when you're dealing with people who are vulnerable and struggling with homelessness, one of the things that is most challenging is a lot of them don't have ID, right? And you need ID in order to access government services and, you know, all kinds of different stuff uh, to be on lists for affordable housing, all of that. But even on a more deeper level, not having ID, right? How do you identify yourself when nobody recognizes who you are? Or, you know, the, the paperwork gets lost in the mail, so to speak. Um, I think that is one of the things that really struck me too, because as somebody who's, you know, white middle class boy, um, ID and having access to it was never really a thing. Um, I always had something on me to be able to access the things that I needed. And when I was working at Wish, one of the things that really opened my eyes is that, you know, this is not true for everybody. Um, because if you don't have paperwork and you don't have ID, you can't open a bank account. And if you can't open a bank account, how are you supposed to have access to funds and things like that? So I don't know if that's connected in any way to what we're going to talk about the podcast, but uh, I think it was really interesting to recognize that and to recognize that, you know, what we take for granted sometimes is just givens or is not the case. And in terms of that ID point, I mean, that's like kind of a, the metaphor of that is really powerful. Um, and I do think about how in the times that Jesus interacted with, um, you know, people with disabilities of various kinds, kind of one of the things I talk about in the book is that one kind of trend among these interactions is a clarifying of identities um, of the person who's being healed, right? That Jesus often uses language of kinship, for example, like when in an interaction like this, like it was like son or daughter, or you are also like a child of Abraham, kind of using this language to say, who you're not this kind, you, you have an identity and your identity is that you're part of this family and um, someone who has faith and someone who belongs and I think that, you know, there's the reality of like actual practically getting people IDs so they can do the things they need to do, which is super important. And the work of like, not just having that ID, but also knowing that what your identity is rooted in is, um, you know, in a place of belonging and in a place of a community that loves you and values you. And maybe let's uh, let's pick up on that theme. Uh, you both done extensive work as leaders in your local churches, and you know, trying new things. And and um, I think that's where we see the the hopefully the practicality and the identity piece come together, right? Where um, 
ideally, the church is a place where people are reminded that they're children of God, that they're beloved, that they have community that they they belong to, uh, and where practical needs are met, right? Where we can come together and and identify those different needs and uh, and meet some of those things. But uh, Bethany, you have a quote uh, early on in your book where you say that, and I really value the stories uh, that you share from people with lived experience, but you say how they've expressed how unhealing they have often found churches quote unquote, healing practices to be is both baffling and heartbreaking that followers of Jesus seeking to heal as Jesus healed would be creating communities and practices that are anything but healing for many people with disabilities. And so we could we could share, uh, <laughs> I'm sure, lots of stories that back up your point here. But maybe if we were to take it the other direction, like what are some, what are some, and either of you can speak to this, what are some signs of hope that you see in Christian community? Where do you see the possibilities for our future? Um, Matt, in the Canadian church context, or, or Bethany, I know there's lots of overlap between our communities as well. So um, how do you see it working itself out? What can we, what can we do towards that? I guess the the hard thing for me is the question about glimpses of hope, I feel like is too strong for me right now. Honestly, that phrase, um, having led a church of people with and without disabilities, intellectual disabilities in particular for a number of years, I think that, and, and seeing how difficult it actually is for people without intellectual disabilities to regard community with people with intellectual disabilities as something fun and genuinely worth it and not just a form of ministry. Um, it was extremely hard. I mean, I, I just, I was baffled at the amount of ableism that actually exists. And I'm not baffled by the amount of ableism that exists, but I mean, I think it was quite heartbreaking for me actually to see how, I feel like I'm a pretty good communicator. I could explain to people without intellectual disabilities that we're in this together, that we have just different ways of communicating and learning, but we're humans and friendship is possible and blah, blah, blah. But yet most people without intellectual disabilities cannot get over the fact of regarding community or spending time with people with intellectual disabilities as uh, work or ministry. Um, to actually see people with intellectual disabilities as peers or potential friends in a real way, not like the way some Christian ministries use the word friend, which really doesn't mean friend at all. It just means patronizing helper. Like, I think that glimpse, I, I want there to be more glimpses of hope. And I do feel like there are a few, like I said, but I feel like I got so tired trying to like convince non-disabled people, people, you know, people without intellectual disabilities in particular that, and I always thought, well, if you just come here and you experience it, you'll see, this is like beautiful and actually fun. And like, um, and I think some people did have that experience. Um, but I was just so discouraged by the level of ableism that's so deeply rooted in people that they couldn't overcome the idea that um, someone with an intellectual disability is anything more than someone they need to help or serve. And I'm st- like still discouraged about it. And I want to see more glimpses of hope, but I, I, I don't really see too many. 
Thank you for your honesty. It's hard to say those things and to verbalize. Um, sometimes I know there's a tendency to feel like we always need to be positive and upbeat and looking to the bright side. But I think that um, there can be prophetic truth in talking about our heartbreak and the things that grieve us as we work through um, spaces of faith. And so thank you for, for bringing that um, because I think it's all part of it, right? It's all part of moving forward and finding that healing. You you can't always heal unless you deal with the things that are causing the grievance, that are causing, if you go back to your biomedical um, idea, you, sometimes you need to remove the thing that's causing the illness or the, the pain in order to make space for a room, um, make space for healing and growth and forward movement. So um, thank you for for naming some of those things, uh, calling them out in us and in people listening. Hopefully we can um, do a check of our own hearts and minds and find places where um, we can remove some of those ableist tendencies we might hold and make space for something good to take root instead. Matt, what about you? Do you have any any grievances or encouraging uh, glimmers of hope that you've been seeing? Well, first of all, again, thanks to Bethany for actually bringing those uh, thoughts, those feelings, those realities to the fore. Because like you said, I don't think it gets talked about often enough in terms of the frustration, or at least vocalizing it. Um, so that was really awesome. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I will say that um, glimmers of hope, and also to pick up on what Bethany was saying, one of the great ironies of my life is that working at Wish was probably the most accessible workplace that I've ever been in, and that was two retrofitted construction trailers with, like, janky ramps on the front, <laughs> um, you know, to get in and out. Um, and those were, in terms of workspace, and in terms of uh, work environment, that was definitely the place where I felt most uh, independent, uh, most respected, most recognized as being able to, to do the job. Um, and that was really surprising to me. Um, so knowing that there are glimmers of hope, um, both in but also outside of the church um, was really important for me, just working at Wish in general. Now, in terms of the church itself, um, in my denomination, which is Anglican, in my context, which is the Canadian church, I will say that um, in terms of leadership and in terms of ordinations and in terms of um, visibility, um, the church is actually getting much, much better in recognizing the leadership qualities of those who are, might be considered disabled, um, might have to use mobility aids and things like that. Whereas when I was a kid, I mean, that was just never, never even part of the equation. Um, I actually started off as Roman Catholic and was told that I wasn't able to go through ordination stream because I wouldn't be able to get up to the altar. Um, you know, and that was like when I was 18, 19. So just in the space of like 15, 20 years, um, it, the church has, has recognized that there's people willing and able to, to, 
be in active ministry, specifically ordained ministry. And it's no longer as much of a barrier, even though you'll definitely still have uh, hurdles to go through in terms of convincing people that, yes, you can do the job. Yes, you're, you are able to, to be a leader, although you might need some accommodations along the way. Um, I think that has been a beacon of light for me. And uh, I, I'm just thankful that it's no longer just an automatic no, if that makes any sense. Can I, I want, this is where I feel like the conversation and the language of disability is sometimes insufficient because I feel like there's two different conversations around accessibility in leadership because I feel like the conversation is really different for someone with um, kind of physical or mobility uh, disabilities versus someone with maybe significant intellectual disabilities mm-hmm. and leadership. And I think the word disability is such a broad, diverse group of people that is like sometimes have almost nothing in common with each other in terms of their bodies or brains or lifestyle or anything. But um, I think that I love that, the, that you're experiencing the church being more accept, like accessible and open to the possibility of having kind of ministers who use mobility aids and different things like that. And I think I've seen that too, though, though, as you also said, there are still a lot of ableist notions. It's, it's in no way perfect. And there's plenty to still do, um, in that regard. But I think about it's part of it is like, as long as someone can lead in a way that we think what a leader should do, like you still have to be able to be really articulate and you still have to like, have advanced degrees and you still have to do these various things. Um, you know, there's still like a way that it's harder. I think sometimes for people to think of like, how could someone be an ordained minister who maybe doesn't use verbal language to speak? How to, would someone be an ordained minister who doesn't read? Um, is that possible? How could God use that person in leadership? Um, I mean, I've experienced that in my life and in our community. Um, but I think that that is the piece where I think people's imaginations are still in need of some growth and some, um, but hopefully what you're talking about, Matt, is this shows that there's some movement and maybe there'll be more waves of that to include the broader diversity of people who are disabled in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that distinction or, or that uh, ability to recognize that disability is this like huge umbrella term that we just kind of use for a lot of different things um, is really important because that also informs um, whenever you, you are talking to churches um, in whatever denomination, in whatever context, is to make sure when you're talking about disability, at least pare it down, at, le- at least have some framework around, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the physical access to the building? Uh, are we talking about leadership? Like being, being able to, to take this huge term and, and bring it down to earth, I think is a little, it's an important step. I don't know how uh, familiar each of you are with uh, Debbie Creamer and her model of a limits model of disability as well. But I think that even expands the conversation a little further, right? From 
um, disability, maybe being a physical characteristic or an intellectual characteristic or what have you, or the stigma associated with it. She talks about how each of us experiences different limits, right? And I don't want to equate that with the, <laughs> I don't even want to say it out loud, but the everyone is disabled kind of mentality, because I think there are some really unique and important things about um, how disability is, is used and engaged. Um, but as I think about limits as well and having uh, coming through, hopefully we're heading to the other side of this pandemic. Um, but we experienced a lot of limitations through this time, right? And churches experienced a lot of limitations in terms of what was shut down and what people could or couldn't do. And in a way that was really hard, uh, but in a way I think it presented a lot of possibilities to say how, and you talked about imagination, Bethany, how can churches reimagine what it means to be the church? And if you can take away all this structure and all the things that we used to do and still have a kind of connection, a kind of um, church happening, right, with, within those limits, how can we reimagine for the future? How can we think about new ways of doing church? And I think you're starting to, to get at that when you talk about things like ordination, like who can be a pastor, who can be a minister, uh, who can minister to others. Uh, I think these are all really powerful questions that we need to look at. Where do our current models or our current ideas of who can minister to others or who is a recognized minister to others? Um, how can we question those and unsettle those so that um, more people can use their gifts and contribute them to community? And so I know that's a... I don't even want to call it a project, but that's, I think it's a, a task for the church in the years ahead, not to see leadership or pastoral ministry as belonging to a certain normal idea of what that's looked like in the past. Uh, and I know this is a, a huge, a huge question, but how do we, how do we start to do that? How do we start to recognize gifts of other people in our congregations? And they may not have an official or formal role, or maybe we can think of what that role looks like. But so we can say, I see that God is working through you uh, in this community. And I just want to recognize that and encourage you in that and, and say that you are um, a beautiful part of, of God's work here. How do we start to do that? So one thing that comes to my mind immediately, I think about, well, from our community, I'll start with a couple of quotes. Like, I feel like somewhere, Stanley Harawa says something like, uh, I don't remember if he's talking about, about children or people with disabilities in this quote specifically, but he is talking about how certain people, when they don't fit in with the way that we do church, um, that we can either kind of respond, this is like a huge paraphrase, <laughs> we can either respond by saying, oh, you need to be different to fit into the way we do our practices. Or we can say, oh, this person is revealing the limits of our practices. Now we're seeing that our practice actually doesn't include everyone. It actually isn't something that's accessible to the diversity of bodies and brains that God has created. And so we need to like evolve to, and, and it's like a prophetic announcing of our limits. And I, I was just yesterday watching Judy Human's um, memorial service. She's like a disability act was a disability activist here in the U S and um, the people she, she was Jewish and the, the leaders of her synagogue were talking about how like, Oh, whenever we saw a voicemail from Judy human on our thing, we were like, Oh no, how do we screw up this time? We got to make a change. And I thought how, what, how, and they were so like, in a way, you know, you could tell they were kind of like, ah, but they were also like, thank you <laughs> at the same time, because you know, as churches, we 
you know, change is hard and like to have to like adjust things does take effort and thoughtfulness and like energy that sometimes feels in short supply when you're leading a church. Um, but at the same time to be able to at least have the framework to say, this is a gift that's actually being given to us because you're, it's like the canary in the coal mine. You're showing us that this thing I, I hate that analogy though, actually, because the canary like dies in the analogy. So <laughs> maybe maybe a different analogy, but one where it's just like someone is saying, "Hey, this isn't working for me," which is actually illustrating that it's probably not working for a lot of other people too. Um, this is just the person who's giving you the gift of speaking up about that, um, or not even necessarily needing to speak. I think about a practice in our community. Um, this was pre pre-COVID when we were on Zoom then for a while, but before we were on Zoom uh, and in person, there was someone in our community who it was not good for them really to be touched or hugged, uh, though this was not something they could express themselves. And so we had to kind of figure out, all right, how can we communicate this in a way um, that kind of keeps this person safe or supports them and what their needs are, but also um, yeah. So, how, how, but they, but when they can't necessarily articulate it themselves, so we came up with this whole. I think I borrowed it, like actually from Mensa when I was like googling online. But it's like a name tag system with which is color coded, like red, yellow, green, with levels of touch that feel um, comfortable for you. So when you would come in and get your name tag, there would be like a description to say, you know, what each one of those means, and you would put the sticker on your badge, and so that ended up being something that lots of people benefited from, um, in the community. People talked about how their children were really helped. It really helped them to have that. It really helped them to be able to explain what consent looks like. There were all these ways that people, or they, they just had a cold or they don't like getting hugged, but they have a hard time saying that. I mean, but they were, there were people in the community that really appreciated this practice that became a part of what we would do together. Um, and it grew out of, and I'll, I think this is where I think what we call leadership is, is a little bit limited because I feel like it was this person's leadership in our community, really just by them being themselves and having a particular support need and us needing to figure out how to navigate that led to a way of us forming our community that ended up being really helpful to a number of people. And so I feel like um, churches can respond to those kinds of things where something isn't working for someone. And so then you kind of get creative and I'm not saying that that's how everyone should do it. And I think there's adaptations that can take place, but um, just recognizing that when someone comes up and says, this isn't working for me, you can either be like, ah, I'm so tired of this person complaining, or you can say, oh, okay, this is an invitation for us to adapt our practices to make them more welcoming um, and accessible to the diversity of people God has made. And uh, I will say that in, ter- in terms of recommendations, Bethany has a very helpful section at the end of her book that says, these are some of the practices that may be helpful. Um, so I would encourage folks to check those out as well. Thanks, Matt, for that recommendation. I also endorse Bethany's book. And I know you're talking about the very end of the book where she has some like practical um like practices people can do. But just before that, she has seven marks of um, healing in the way of Jesus. The first one uh, she talks about, sorry, I should talk to you, Bethany. The first one you talk about um, a positive reception on the part of the person receiving the healing. Um, And that's the one, Matt, that um, 
Keith was talking about your story earlier about the person who approached you while you were wearing your clerical collar and asked if you know Jesus, but there was a, a healing co- um, component to that conversation too. And, and you stifled your laughter and Keith pointed to how that was a, a positive um, reaction. But can you just talk us through that a little bit um, specifically around, I understand the man wanted to know, do you know Jesus? But he also wanted to talk about, do you want to be healed and how you received that, how you felt that and how you responded? Yeah, so in that particular instance, he came up to me and asked me if I knew Jesus, and I said, yeah, yeah I might, you might say that I work for him, and so the conversation continued a little bit after that, and eventually we, we got on to the topic of my disability, and he says, well, wouldn't, you know, don't you want to be healed? Or I think in the, in the wider context of, of the conversation, it was, you know, as well, if you if you believe enough, <laughs> um, God, God will heal you. And sort of, I, I took that, um, and I eventually said to him, "Well, I I don't think that God will just magically heal me. Uh, I don't think that's how that works. Um, and also, you know, I think actually that God might have made me this way." And that's what sort of caused the confusion and, and caused uh, him to not know what to say. And he ended up walking away because for him, that was the end of the conversation. Um, and so that led me to a whole bunch of reflection on, you know, why being disabled is not this terrible thing. Um, and that sort of plays itself out both in the story and in the rest of Bethany's book. Matt, I understand um, that you've talked in other places. I've I've seen videos of you you're talking about seeing your disability as a gift and how that was a process and a journey for you. And you just alluded to that right here, that it led you to reflect on how being disabled isn't necessarily a bad thing. Do you want to speak any more to that, that process you've had of seeing your disability as a gift? Oh, for sure. Um, I think because I'm now 40, I was born in 1982. And so uh, when I was born with cerebral palsy, a lot of my childhood was focused on physical therapy. It was focused on occupational therapy, uh, having orthopedic surgeries to make sure that, you know, I could be as mobile as I possibly could. And so for a long, long time, both as a child and as a teen, um, my CP was something that had to be overcome, improved, uh, whatever word it is that you want to use. And it wasn't until I got older as an adult, and more specifically when I attended the conference in Toronto, uh, that I was able to start thinking about my disability as something that was integral to who I am and, you know, what I offer in terms of my ministry to the church. Because before that, it was all about just how do I make it so that the church can accommodate the wheelchair? How can I make it so that I'm as normal as possible in the eyes of the church? Um, and then, like I said, after that conference and being exposed to all kinds of different people and all kinds of conversations, um, that's when I was able to start integrating it. And that was like well past my my teen years and into my early adult years, you know, and I think that process of unlearning the ableism 
is something that everyone with a disability has to go through at some point, or at least I should say, you know, in my case for a physical disability, I, it was definitely something that I had to unlearn. I don't want to make blanket statements for everyone. Thanks for sharing that. Bethany, did you want to comment any more on um, any of the marks of uh, healing in the way of Jesus that you outline in your book? Um, well, I think just the reason that the the very first mark is that there's a positive reception by the person, you know, receiving the healing. Part of the reason um, that that is first is because of, I mean, it is a genuine, you know, when Jesus interacts with people in the Gospels and in a healing sort of way, they at worst are kind of neutral after the experience, but mostly are positive. They are worshiping God. They're grateful. They become a follower of Jesus. There's some kind of positive reaction most of the time. And um, as Matt outlined in his story, (laughs) when this random man came up to him and was like, Hey, let me tell you why I think your body is wrong and I can pray for it to be unwronged. That that was not received positively. I know, shocking that someone coming up and telling you your body is messed up is uh, not something that feels awesome. But um, so I think that, you know, people have are kind of good intentioned in a way. Um, I think that people think that they're doing something caring. And part of that, I think it's because they, you know, especially if they're Christians, um, they're looking at what Jesus did and feeling like what we need to do is follow Jesus by going around and like curing people. And so I think recognizing that actually though, if you're doing what Jesus did, it should be having these same kinds of effects, which are that the person in the end, again, is feeling good and not feeling bad. So if you have an interaction with someone and you think you're doing some kind of healing and the person feels worse, maybe you're not actually healing in the way of Jesus. And I think that... Probably not doing the job. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I think that um, that's why it felt really important for that to be part of the equation because part of doing this contextual bridging between you know, obviously Jesus is operating in the first century Mediterranean world and we are in a really different context. So part of realizing, you know, what does healing in the way of Jesus look like today means we have to kind of do some contextual translation, right? No one's spitting in the dirt and rubbing mud in blind people's eyes. I hope they're not doing that. Um, And so we realize that we're not just kind of woodenly doing the things that Jesus did. But we have to also notice as Jesus functioned as a healer, what were the outcomes of that? How did that, how did the context respond? And so we would want our context to respond in a similar way, which means that, you know, disabled people are being integrated and um, affirmed and not feeling wounded after a healing experience, a quote unquote healing experience. Um, So so yeah, I just wanted to name that's why it's first, because I've heard way too many stories like Matt's, um, where people who are just trying to get their groceries, suddenly someone wants to tell them that they can walk again. And they just, you know, and I think it's just really, it's, I think it's hard too, because, and you can say more, because you, you were talking to Matt about the process you have got, had to go through in your own life of internalized ableism and what it's been like to overcome that and recognize that maybe God intended and created your body in the 
in as for all of us in the way that it is with intention and purposefulness and love and all of those things. And that learning process is really hard. And so for someone to kind of come up to you when you've gone through this journey with God of helping to recognize and receive your body as a gift, and for then someone to come up and say, you know what your body is? Not a gift. It's just really a way of not kind of supporting and affirming the trajectory God actually had you on of healing, the healing trajectory God already had you on. And someone is doing something that's genuinely unhealing in the name of healing. And so I think that's why I was like, front and center, positive reception by the person receiving healing. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, Keith, you talked at the beginning of the podcast about uh, having humor and and being able to recognize that, you know, sometimes humor is the only way that you can respond in a given situation because otherwise it's just sad. Um, But also... More importantly to what Bethany was saying, too, I recognized that that dude was well-intentioned. When he came up to me, he wanted me to be well. Now, our definitions of what it meant to be well were different, but he wanted what he felt was good and and right and, you know, loving. Um, So recognizing that intention is, is really important. But I think a lot of times we act as though we do and our our best of intentions kind of translate into imagining what life is like for somebody else and imposing our own view. And by doing that, we're actually bypassing this relationship that we already have with Jesus, right? We're kind of saying, I know better. I don't need to listen to Jesus. I don't need to listen to this other person. I'm going to go in there and, and minister to them, right? Um, so I appreciate the way that each of you have really highlighted uh, how we are all seeking to follow Christ um, together, and how do we do that in community? And you've spoken to the the comedy of that, the tragedy of that, the drama of that, right? And hopefully we can learn to do that better together. Um, I'm wondering if you can point us to whether it's uh, stuff that you're actively doing these days that you want to uh, direct people to or resources that you found particularly helpful just as we close off our time together. Sure. Um Right now, um, as you probably mentioned in the bio, I'm doing some interim work for parishes, just sort of doing the regular Sunday stuff. And then also in terms of writing, I'm working on a on a concept piece right now. It's not fully formed in my head. Um, but what, what trauma is, uh, how we define that, and sort of how that has an effect on the way we think about disability. Um, that, that's sort of my main interest right now, my main focus. Um, so that's what I'm writing on right now. Um, yeah, I feel like for me, some of my work around disability is a little indirect these days. Um, I feel like after kind of moving on from leading beloved everybody, which is the church that I started, um, partly because of the heartbreak of some of what it was like to lead the community and experience the ableism of the world. I feel like I'm taking a little bit of a breath, um, and not doing, I'm a, I'm a little bit tur- turtling, or I don't know if that's like a verb, but um, in a little shell. <laughs> and so I feel like uh, a lot of the work that I do these days has, is with church starters across the country, particularly in the Presbyterian Church USA, but also other denominations and people, um, both locally and nationally. And so I think thinking about um, innovative ways that people are choosing to 
kind of start new kinds of church communities and gather as Christian communities is something that's really interesting to me, um, both connected to disability and just connected to a wider range of people who for right now, church is not working for them for all kinds of reasons. And so disability is one of those reasons. Um, but I think that I'm really being encouraged and doing some work in innovative church spaces um, and figuring out what does kind of gathered Christian community look like going forward. Since I think, well, I, I think that the the traditional kind of church is, is going to die. And so I wonder what is going to be reborn. And I think as Christians, we're resurrection people. So I'm actually excited to see what kinds of new communities will come from the ashes. Um, so. So that's, that's where I'm thinking these days. If you liked today's episode, please take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. It helps people to find this podcast. And why not share this episode with a friend? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Send us an email at ministry at christian-horizons.org. This podcast has been brought to you by Christian Horizons and is part of the New Leaf Podcast Network. Christian Horizons is a faith-based organization out of Canada. We serve people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in Ontario, Saskatchewan, and in several countries around the world through Christian Horizons Global. You can find more information about us at christianhorizons.org. Special thanks to Tim Bratton and to the New Leaf Podcast Network team, and to you for listening.